How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, from the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished to every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we open God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and concentrate before we get into the word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word and to... Uh, to have fellowship with you through the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us. Father, we pray as we study your word that you would help us to uh, clearly concentrate and think about the things that we are studying, and that we might be challenged by what we uh, study in your word that might enable us to think more correctly about history, about the outworking of your plan in history, and about what you are doing in the spiritual life of this age and the tremendous assets that you have given us in this age. pray that we would be challenged by these things as we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study of God's plan for the ages, covenants and dispensations, and we are in our fifth lesson now in the First two lessons, we focused on the meaning of dispensations and covenants. And then last time, and then the third time, we began to focus on the relationship of human history to the angelic conflict. That's sort of the three big pegs that we have to have in place before we start looking precisely at the outworking of God's plan in history. So we'll begin by looking at the four parts to the, to the definition of dispensationalism. First of all, a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. It is not in essence a time frame, although that's how we think about it. It emphasizes the aspect of administration based on the Greek word oikonomos or oikonomia, which comes from two words meaning house, oikos, and law, namas, and indicates that at each stage in human history, God has a different house law or a different administration, different way in which he is administering uh, mankind, affairs with mankind, and where history is going. Now, what is it then that, that informs that decision, why God is administering it in that way? Because in each age, as we'll point out as we go through this study, in each age God is trying to show us and the angels something about the evilness of sin and its destructiveness in our lives and that sin is no basis for advancing mankind, for bringing harmony to relationships or anything else. That there are three factors that are essential if there is going to be any degree of success, and it's those three factors which we've studied and we'll look at in a minute that were all violated by Satan's rebellion. So each of those administrations 
has certain things in common and certain things that are distinct. Salvation is always by faith alone in Christ alone. But the way in which that has been manifested is a little different. In the Old Testament, they anticipated the coming of Christ. And they did that through rituals, through a variety of sacrifices revealed in the Mosaic Law. In the New Testament, there are no sacrifices. Christ is the sacrifice, the end of the law. We look back to His coming. And then in the Millennial Kingdom, there will be a restoration of a, of a notice, a sacrificial system in the Millennial Temple related to the nation Israel. But it is vastly different. There are not nearly as many sacrifices as there were in the Levitical system. In fact, one rabbi in the, uh, I think it was before Christ, uh, sat up, isolated himself for about uh, three weeks trying to figure out a way to reconcile Ezekiel with Leviticus because they wouldn't accept Ezekiel into the canon unless they could reconcile these two different sacrificial systems. He came up with quite an innovative way to do it after he had gone five or six days without any sleep and not having any food. Of course, if you go five or six days without any sleep and no food, you can come up with all sorts of innovative ways to solve problems. doesn't mean they work. So uh, uh, it's clear that even the Jews recognize that, uh, that Ezekiel, uh, the Ezekiel system of sacrifices was vastly different from that of Leviticus. So a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration. Identifiable means it has certain characteristics that distinguishes it from another dispensation. Secondly, a closely connected but not interchangeable word is the word age from the Greek word ion, which introduces the time element. Now, I use these words sometimes interchangeably, but I think of a dispensation more in terms of a period of an administration that is controlled by a particular kind of revelation known as a covenant. And we have studied covenants. A covenant is a contract between God, the party of the first part, man, party of the second part. And in that contract, God stipulates uh, what he is going to do. In some covenants, there is a condition for divine blessing. And so we call those conditional or temporary or bilateral covenants. In other contracts, there is no condition base for divine blessing, and that is we call an unconditional, unilateral, or permanent covenant. That means it's still in effect. So, uh, age, I tend to think in broader terms. For example, from Adam to uh, Abraham is all Gentiles. I think of that as the age of the Gentiles, which is subdivided into three dispensations because of the covenants. Uh, you have the Edenic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Noahic covenant, and so you have three dispensations that comprise one age. Then you have the Jewish age, then the church age, and then the millennial age. The third aspect of our dispensation, God manages, I mean, the third aspect of our definition, God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration, determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in history. So in each age, there is an advance in revelation, 
And there seems to be some teaching in each age related to man's inability to solve his problems on his own and that ultimately uh, it's not up to man, it's up to God, and that man not only cannot solve his problems on his own, but the problems that he has are not related to his environment. That's crucial because man's fall took place in perfect environment. When Jesus Christ returns, he restores perfect environment, and yet there is still a rebellion at the end of the age. Why? Because man has a sin nature, and it is that sin nature that is the cause. It is sin and human volition that is always the cause of problems and failure. It's not environment. So each age is going to demonstrate certain spiritual principles. Then the fourth aspect of the, dis- of the definition of dispensations, each administrative period is characterized by revelation that specifies responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, failure to pass the test, and always God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. That no matter how often man fails, no matter how drastically man fails, no matter how consistently man fails, God even more faithfully and consistently always responds in grace to provide a perfect solution. Always remember that God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. Therefore, there is nothing in human history to take God by surprise. So he was able to provide a solution in eternity past for every problem that might come up in human history. So he has provided that for us, and that is the doctrine of the sufficiency of God's grace and the sufficiency of revelation. Now, what move, as I said earlier, what moves each dispensation along, the dynamic moving factor of revelation is the covenant. God has established three broad-based Gentile covenants in the Old Testament. Frankly, I think it's one covenant with three modific- or with two modifications. There's the Edenic covenant in Genesis 1:27 to 28, which spells out the fact that man is to serve God on planet Earth and is to rule over creation. But because of the fall, the test was related to eating the fruit of the tree and of the knowledge of good and evil, because of the fall, that had to be modified. And we'll see tonight just exactly how the Adamic covenant modifies the Edenic covenant. But still, man is left at the top of the, uh, of the uh, pyramid and in control of the planet, even though everything has now been cursed. The Adamic covenant lasted up till its failure, man's failure under the Adamic covenant, and God judges the earth by means of a universal flood, and then says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. That presupposes that there's this covenant out here that God is going to establish again with Noah. Now, some people have come along and say, well, how do you know that there is a covenant out there and God's not just talking, not just saying, I will establish a new covenant with you. And we know that because of Hosea, where in Hosea we read that Adam broke God's covenant in the garden. But yet the word covenant's never mentioned in Genesis 1 or 2. Just because the word's not there doesn't mean there's not a covenantal structure there. Covenantal language is all through those chapters. And so God is going to reestablish, but there are modifications again at the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant continues throughout all of human history until the second coming of Christ when there will be certain modifications again with 
the new covenant. It applies to all Gentiles. If you go through and you do an analysis of all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you look at the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of them, you look at them and they all have judicial pronouncements of God's judgment on uh, the Gentile nations, on Edom, on Moab, on the Assyrians, on Babylon, on Egypt, on Tyre and Sidon. And yet if you analyze the basis for those judgments, it always comes down to two basic reasons God judges the Gentile powers. Number one, they're into idolatry. They have rejected God, and that is part of the Noahic covenant. And number two, they are anti-Semitic. They are against Israel, and God has pro- had promised Abraham, those who curse you, i.e., those who treat you lightly, I will curse drastically. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So they're not judged because they don't live up to obligations in the Mosaic law. There's always somebody who comes along who tries to say that, well, they, they're, they're not sacrificing, they're not doing this, they're, and they pick, they're, they're not obeying the Sabbath. That's all for Israel. The, the requirements for the Gentiles is very broad-based, very general. It's, ex, it's expressed in the Noahic Covenant, and because they fail that, there is, that's the basis for divine judgment. And then God will institute a unconditional Jewish covenant. It is the Abrahamic covenant with three provisions, land, seed, and blessing, which are then developed in three additional covenants, the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Now, all of these up to this point are unconditional and they are eternal. They are permanent throughout human history. The new covenant fulfills all of them, I think, perhaps even the Noahic Covenant when it's instituted at the Second Coming. And then you have the Mosaic Covenant, which is a conditional or temporary covenant expressed in Exodus 20 through 40. That's the outline of the covenants and their effect on human history. Now, there are three things that we said uh, were expressed in the character of Satan's rebellion that are always part of man's success or man's failure. One is orientation to authority. The second is orientation to role. And the third is our personal love for God the Father. That is violated by Adam in the fall, which is about where we ended last time. With Adam's sin against God, he is no, he's not obedient to God, which is an act of, of not loving God. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So disobeying a, a, a commandment is tantamount to not loving God. There is a uh, disorientation to role because the woman takes the leadership and she, uh, she tempts the man. She leads him astray. The man becomes the follower. The woman becomes the initiator. On the other hand, instead of the man and woman together as a team ruling over creation. It is the serpent, a lower creature who comes along and tempts the woman. So there's a role reversal. Instead of man ruling, man becomes subservient to the serpent. Instead of following the divine order of role orientation in the marriage, there's a role reversal. And in all of it, there is a refusal to serve God. We saw that the key 
mandate for the responsibility of man in Genesis 2.15 was that God put him in the garden to uh, serve him, which is part of worship, to serve him in the garden and to guard it. And that implies that there is a hostile force to guard the garden from. Now that lays out the where we've come so far in our study of those first uh, dispensations. This is all part of the theocentric dispensations of the Old Testament, which have God more as their focus. The first part's the age of the Gentiles. We have studied the Edenic covenant, the first dispensation of the age of human perfection, which ends with Adam's failure and the modification of the Edenic covenant, which is now known as the Adamic covenant, and that introduces the second dispensation, the dispensation of conscience. And then that will end with the angelic infiltration of the human race in Genesis 6 and the human race rejection of God's grace provision of the ark, and that brings the worldwide flood and the Noahic covenant, which then introduces the age of civil government. So this is all occurring before 2000 B.C. So we looked at the dispensation of perfect environment from the creation of man to the fall in Genesis 1:28 to 3:8. At the end last time, I was getting to the point of showing how that related to the angelic conflict. So we have about seven points on the relationship of the age of perfect environment to the angelic conflict. First of all, Satan attacks man's volition, which is the focal point of character. The issue is volition. It's not environment. It's not whether you grew up in poverty or you grew up in wealth. It's not whether you grew up in the slums or whether you grew up in the country, grew up in the United States, or grew up in India. The issue is always volition. No matter who you are, or where you are in human history, you have a number of strikes against you. We all have an indwelling sin nature, which means that we are enslaved to sin. We are born in bondage. Just as the Jews were born in bondage in, in Egypt, so we are born in bondage to the sin nature. That means that from the time we're born until the time that we are saved, we have a slave mentality. And man will always move towards a slave mentality depending on on the control of the sin nature and his particular propensities. So that is the problem with man. That's why true freedom in human history is extremely rare. The issue is never environment. The issue is human volition. That's the focal point of man's character and the focal point of the angelic conflict. Second point, the failure of human volition mirrors the failure of angelic volition before the rebellion. When Satan sinned and he uttered his famous five I wills and the last of which is I will be like the Most High, he had exercised his volition apart from any external influence. He had freely chosen to rebel against God and to reject divine authority and to reject his own role as a servant of God. When, he, when God judged the angels, and then Satan and Lucifer were—I mean, Lucifer and the fallen angels were sentenced to the lake of fire. They challenged God's decision in terms of its fairness, in terms of its consistency with His character. 
And so God is demonstrating in human history that the issue is volition. The issue is not God's character, that because God is absolute justice and righteousness, he can do nothing that is less than absolutely fair. And because he is a God of love and expresses his character in grace, he has done more than enough in order to provide for his creatures. So he created an experiment, human history, in which he would demonstrate the depth and the breadth of his own character and its consistency. So he sets up a test which mirrors the volitional test that existed among the angels. And so man's failure mirrors the failure of angelic volition. Satan, point number three, Satan scored a tactical victory in the garden. He thought he had won a major victory because now he has stolen rulership of the planet from mankind. He's back in charge and he's going to be able to demonstrate that he can indeed act like God and rule a creature and rule the planet. So he thinks he's won and scored a great victory, but he doesn't realize that it is a hollow victory that will ultimately destroy him. Because in the midst of this tactical victory that Satan has, uh, has won, point number four, God already knew about and had provided a grace plan to deal with man's failure. This grace plan, again, makes volition, human volition, the issue, and it demonstrates God's integrity. It demonstrates that His grace goes beyond uh, anything one could imagine because God Himself, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, will provide the perfect solution to man's failure. So God has a plan in mind, and in that plan, Satan will ultimately be defeated. So Satan's apparent Victory in the garden turns out to be his death knell. Point five, ironically, Satan's tactical victory sounded his own eventual defeat. Because he was able to uh, tempt man to disobey God, it opens the door for God to demonstrate his love and grace in ways that the angels could only imagine before the fall. They had no clue that God's grace and love extended this far, that He would love a creature so much that He would become incarnate as that creature in order to die as a substitute for that creature and take His punishment on Himself. See, that is the extent of divine grace. God is going to demonstrate that in this, the role orientation, that God Himself will become a servant. This is what happens in Philippians chapter 2, and one of the reasons that that passage is so crucial to understanding uh, Jesus Christ and His role in human history. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told that, that Christ, who although He existed in the form, that is, morphe, the essence of God... He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. Now contrast that with Satan who wants to be God and who uses that same temptation with man. You want to be like God? Eat the fruit. That's why God doesn't want you to eat it. You'll be like Him. So in contrast to Satan and man who want to be like God and pursue that, and want to, re- and therefore reject their role, Jesus 
has is fully God, and he's not willing to hold on to that all the divine prerogatives, but is willing to subordinate himself and to become a creature. Of course, he does not lose any of his deity. He voluntarily restricts its independent use while he is incarnate. So he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form, once again that word morphe, the inner essence of a bondservant. See, Satan rejects being a servant. He rejects humility. In its place, he puts. He wants to be the boss. He wants to be the one in charge, and he's operating on arrogance. Adam does the same thing. He rejects being a servant to serve God in the garden. The Hebrew word avad, he rejects that. He rejects his role. He wants to be like God, so he too caves into arrogance. But in contrast, we see the Creator becoming... Uh, incarnate and taking on the the uh, role of a servant, being made in the likeness, that is, the physical appearance of a man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him. And here we see the issue. Satan thinks, Satan and human viewpoint, cosmic thinking all says, the way to self, to exaltation is to develop it from yourself. If I don't promote myself, nobody else will. But God says, if you don't, if God doesn't promote you, you're not promoted. And the only way to get God promote, to promote you is through humility and authority orientation and role orientation and personal love for God the Father. When you reject that, you're operating on Satan's cosmic plan and you will not get anywhere. It, it, it destroys all of us as it does with Satan. Now, point number six. In man's fall, Adam violated personal love for God. He reverses the male-female role, and he rejects his position as a servant of God. This is why it's stressed over and again in the Old Testament when you look at Abraham as a friend of God, that Abraham serves the God. David serves God. Moses served God. Again and again and again, you have this character quality of being a servant emphasized, and that entails humility and role orientation and personal love for God. So all of that comes together as a crucial character factor in becoming a testimony, a witness in the angelic conflict. And then point number seven, as a result of man's fall, God would be able to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, and that it is compatible with his love, and it would be demonstrated through his grace. He would be able to demonstrate his righteousness and justice in compatibility with his love through his grace. So God, once he does this in a unique way in human history, does it for all time. You see, the biblical view of history is if if you do it once, it doesn't need to be done again. See, modern man thinks that history is subjective and fluid, so everything has to be done in every generation. That's that that's that's an unstated assumption, even in the charismatic movement. People who think, well, there needs to be God needs to be continuing to to authenticate the Word through miracles and signs and wonders in every generation. But God says, no, if I've done it once, I've done it for all time. It doesn't need to be repeated. 
And so there is this inherent problem in man always wanting God to validate everything on man's terms and not on God's terms. So those seven points summarize uh, man's position in the angelic conflict. Now, the thing that we see in the Scriptures, one of the most challenging and interesting facets in the New Testament, is the number of verses that indicate that man is the object of angelic observation and that this is part of the whole angelic conflict, that they are watching us to learn things that they could learn no other way. So God is demonstrating His integrity, His, His righteousness and justice, and His love through grace in order to demonstrate things to the angels and to us that are demonstrated no other way. For example, in the Incarnation, we have a reference to the angelic witness of that in 1 Timothy 3.16. This is a quotation from a hymn of the uh, early church. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Literally, that should be translated the mystery of the spiritual life and spirituality. He, that is Jesus Christ, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated by means of the Spirit. That would be His resurrection. He was seen by angels. That's the point. He's witnessed by angels. They were watching him and learning from the Lord Jesus Christ things that they could learn no other way. And then it goes on to say he was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. But the point in that verse is that Jesus Christ was observed by the angels in order to learn things. Paul refers to this same thing elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 4.9. When he is talking about his role and the role of other disciples, he said, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. See, that's humility and role orientation. Men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. That's humility. Both to angels and to men. See, it's not just important that we have a witness to others. We normally think of a witness to others in terms of communicating the gospel to them. But it is also to have a life that stands as a testimony to the grace of God. We only achieve that ultimately when we reach spiritual maturity, and that's when the spiritual life really begins. I keep challenging everybody to realize, just like when you were a kid and you couldn't wait to be an adult because that's where everything started happening, it's the same way in the spiritual life. Spiritual life really doesn't begin till you reach spiritual adulthood. It's not that hard, folks. It's done by consistently applying the uh, Word of God under the filling ministry of the Spirit of God, and then we advance to maturity, and then we glorify God. And it just takes a lot of... Uh, all it takes is making learning doctrine the number one priority in our life. And once we hit spiritual maturity, that's when we really have a testimony before the angels. 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul states, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. In other words, there's a suggestion here that all of the ramifications of God's wisdom could not be made known under the angelic system as it existed prior to the recreation of planet Earth in Genesis 1-2. So God is, is demonstrating His wisdom in a much broader way through the church much more than in the Old Testament in Israel, before that in the age of the Gentiles, or before that just with the angels, might now be made known through the church to the rulers 
and the authorities. That's technical terminology for the structure of the angelic forces. Both fallen and holy angels are mentioned as having this sort of structure. There is authority structure and a chain of command among the angels. 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul said to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. We are being watched by the angels. We are in a great stadium. We are the participants in the eternal spiritual Olympics. And the angels are the observers. And they are learning great things about God by watching us. 1 Peter 1.12 It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this is all part of the angelic conflict. Now, with man's failure to uh, obey God, his eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have uh, man sin entering into the human race, and so there's a modification of the covenant. So the Adamic covenant, the verses begin in Genesis 3:14 and go to the end of the chapter, or go down to 3:21 specifically for the angelic conflict. And this is going to initiate the uh, new dispensation of human conscience. The first point of the curse is outlined in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. Now, we know that the serpent is really, uh, the, uh, is really Lucifer, the devil, that in Revelation he is called the, the dragon, who is also known as the serpent, the devil of old, and that he has either uh, indwelt or he has disguised himself as a, as a serpent. I would think that he has indwelt the serpent. Somehow there seems to be something here, uh, perhaps, um, about the serpent allowing this to happen or being used in this way so that the serpent is cursed. There is a further curse on the serpent. Notice the second clause. First of all, I want you to notice all this is written. If you have New American Standard Bible, it's written as poetry. It's bracketed out in terms of poetry. If you have Older King James or another version, I'm not sure, but in the New American Standard, from Genesis 3:14 and following, is written as poetry. It's poetry in the uh, original Hebrew. So that there is parallelism here. Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. That is, a, there is a comparative there, more than. That means that the curse upon the serpent goes beyond the curse on the rest of the animal kingdom. But this is clearly stating that every uh, member of the animal kingdom is being cursed. Not just the serpent, but the serpent more so. And the specific cursing of the serpent is that it would no longer walk upright. So apparently not only did uh, animals have perhaps some ability to talk or speak, because that did not seem to surprise the woman when the serpent spoke to her, but also walked upright. So things were really different in the garden. 
know, most of us want to think of the Garden of Eden as not too different from the way things are now. But it was, if we were taken out of the world today and transported back in time to plop down in the Garden of Eden, we would think we were on another planet. It was vastly different. Physical laws functioned differently in the Garden of Eden than they did afterwards, and that's because of the curse. Things looked different. Animals functioned different. Everything was, was, was different. Now the snake would go on its belly, on its guts, and would eat dust all the days of your life. Now that is the first part of the curse, the first uh, provision of the Adamic covenant, is that there would be a transformation of the animal kingdom. Secondly, in verse 15, we see what's called the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first mention of the gospel. That's what it means in Latin, proto-first, evangelium of the gospel. The first mention of the gospel. God says, I will put enmity, that is anger or hostility, between you and the woman. Now, that's a lot more than just the fact that, that when most women see a snake, they might be tempted to scream and run. There are a lot of guys that way. When I was in college, I was in, in, a, in an ROTC, and we were in a sort of a special unit. And uh, we had a commanding officer who uh, was a cadet, and he went through airborne school, ranger school, and ultimately did about, I think, 25 years of active duty. But if you said the word snake, uh, Don would be about halfway up the nearest tree and asking before he ever asked where. You know, everybody has their phobias, and his was snakes. So everybody can have a problem. I personally don't ever want to touch one. I, I'm fascinated watching them, but that can only go so far. But I think that all of that is part of this curse, that there is something racial, racially embedded in the human race towards snakes, unless you watch that guy, the crocodile guy. Or <laughs> A&E, yeah, everybody knows who I'm talking about. And somehow he was, he stepped out of the room when God was taking care of him. I was watching him the other day handling cobras and he's got on sunglasses so that the, uh, the, the, the snake can't really see where his eyes are. And this cobra, he's getting up within 10 feet, grabbing it by the tail and this thing spitting at him. Of course, if that venom got in his eyes, it would blind him. You have to be suicidal to do something like that. Yeah, I'm crazy too. Yes, that's right. So I, God says, I will put in between, between you and the woman. And this has ramifications in terms of spirit, the, the uh, spiritual conflict because it is foreshadowing the conflict between Satan and the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ, which is the next clause, and between your seed and her seed. And that is a reference to the incarnation of Christ through a woman. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the thing to notice is there's a connection here, and it is in... The, the imagery here is, is, and I've seen this, you're out in the forest, you're walking down the uh, trail, and you have on your hiking boots and hopefully your snake gaiters, and you see, coiled up in the middle of the trail... A, a snake. Now, you may be able to identify it as some sort of pit viper. You do that by looking at its head. It's triangular in shape, has vertical slits for eyes, 
and pits going from the eyes down along each side of the nose. Rattlesnakes, copperheads, and um, cottonmouth water moccasins are all pit vipers. The only poisonous snake in North America that's not a pit viper is a coral snake. And a coral snake it doesn't have fangs. The other, two ha- the other three have fangs through which they inject the venom, but a, pit, but a uh, coral snake doesn't have fangs, just has straight teeth and has to, doesn't have a very big mouth. If you've ever seen a coral snake, always remember the little Boy Scout motto, red and yellow, kill a fellow, uh, red and black, friend of Jack. And uh, the red and the black, when the red and black bands are together, that's a king snake. And I remember one year, I was a counselor down at a Christian camp in, uh, in Texas, at which I did for many years, and uh, we would normally find many snakes during the summer. One of my least fond remembrances is riding on the front of a, about a 66 Dodge that the driver thought was a tank because we were out in the boonies somewhere. And I'm holding on to the windshield wiper with one hand for dear life. And with the other hand, I've got a snake stick around a big rattlesnake that was about this big around. And I'm pulling back on that thing with dear life because if I loosen up, he's going to get loose and get me. And we're just bouncing along the road like everything. So we would always catch some snakes. And one of my this one year, I had three boys that came along, and they were... Uh, just real troublemakers, and and they came from a broken home. I think they were two of them were brothers, and one was a friend. And their mothers just bounced them from one camp to another all summer long until it was time to send them back to school in the fall. So these kids were came from a lot of bad problems in their background, and they were you just first day you saw them, you knew they were trouble. They had a chip on their shoulder. They didn't want to be there, and they weren't going to take any of this Christian stuff. And I doubt if their parents even knew that it was a Christian camp. They didn't care. Just another place to get rid of them for a couple of weeks. So now they're my problem. Well, we would usually pray for these kids every morning in prayer meeting and figure out some way that God would make the gospel clear to them. One day, the older of the boys comes in with this snake in his hand. And he is going to show me his catch for the day that he's got a king snake. And, of course, you've probably guessed by now, it wasn't a king snake. It was a coral snake. And this coral snake had bit him a couple of times. Hadn't broken the skin because a coral snake has a small mouth, has to get around a small area like the webbing between your fingers or the end of your little finger and chew a while until it breaks the skin enough to get the venom in there. But the fact that this snake had hit him a couple of times, it struck at him a couple of times, and he realized that he came so close to being cold and dead that he instantly trusted Christ, his, led his brother to the Lord five minutes later, and their friend to the Lord five minutes after that. So, it didn't take them long to realize that life could be very short indeed, and you better be prepared for the end. So... uh Anyway, there are many times when we would be out on the trail and see a snake, and so you get ready to step on it and kill it with your boot. And of course, you've got leggings on, so you're protected. And as you are going down to crush its head, it strikes at you. And if you didn't have protection on, it would, it would get you in the process of dying. And that's the picture here, that just as the serpent strikes and is going to hit the seed of the woman in the heel, which is a non, portrayed as a non-fatal wound, 
and the same action there would be uh, he would be bruised on the head, which is a fatal wound. So in the very process of Satan thinking he's going to have another victory by putting Christ on the cross, he, it, it seals his doom. So in the act of, of his attacking the seed of the woman, he is ultimately defeated. So that is the Proto-Evangelium, which focuses on the uh, fact that the Savior would come as the seed of the woman. There would be the conflict between uh, his seed and her seed. Now this is going to play an important role in the next dispensation, in the dispensation of of human conscience, because the serpent realizes, or Satan realizes, that this seed has to be true humanity. So the best way to attack this and keep this from happening is to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. So there's a little foreshadowing going on in this curse. The woman is then cursed, in verse 16, in relation to her realm of responsibility under the Edenic covenant where she failed. She was to be a helper to the man, and she was to, of course, have an important role in fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply. It would be awfully hard for Adam to accomplish that without her. It was a team activity for the man and the woman together. And it is in that area that she is cursed. First of all, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. The implication of the Hebrew is that she was expected to have childbirth, but there would not be pain associated with it. There's a physical transformation that took place in the female of the human race at that point such that from this point on, there would be a regular reminder that she is cursed. And that would... ...monthly cycle. That's why when you get into the Mosaic Law, and whenever a woman is in that time of the month, she cannot go into the tabernacle or the temple, she's ceremonially unclean. Why? Not because she sinned, but be, remember you couldn't touch the dead, you couldn't eat, all those animals you couldn't eat were scavengers because they touched the dead. And death is what? Death is a reminder of sin. So it was that fact that during that menstrual time, it is a reminder of sin and the curse, and that is to the reason that's, that's um, uh, emphasized is because continuously in the Levitical offerings, man is forbidden to touch anything dead or anything that will remind him of sin and to show that sin separates man from God. Over and over again, if you really obeyed the, the Levitical law and you look at all the stipulations there, what you would realize after a couple of days is just about everything you did got you in trouble and, uh, and which just demonstrated that sin permeated everything. It was a very concrete object lesson. So, the, the first thing is the woman's role in relationship to uh, be fruitful and multiply is cursed now with pain. In pain you shall be for, bring forth children. And then her role as a helper to her husband is cursed. Yet your desire, and the Hebrew here is teshuka, which was only used three times in the Hebrew. It's used again in um, 
Genesis 4, verse 7, where it says, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire to shuka, its desire is for you, and the idea of control to usurp authority and to take charge. So instead of being a helper, now the woman wants to uh, wear the pants in the family, make the decisions, be the leader, be the one to sit in judgment on the husband, be the nag. All of those things are all related to this overall curse on woman. It's a curse. Each man, woman, nature, everything is cursed in relationship to the original Edenic stipulation. The man is now cursed in relation to his realm of responsibility. Then to verse 17, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, previously under the Edenic covenant, the ground was just going to spring forth all sorts of... Uh, vegetables and plant life and everything, all for the benefit of mankind. Everything was in perfect harmony. And so, yes, the tree huggers and the environmentalists are right. Man has totally screwed up the environment. But they're not willing to own up to the fact that man is this much of the problem. See, what the Bible says is, you're right. Man is the problem. He is so much the problem that he's spiritually dead and his spiritual death has devastated everything in the universe and, there's, and it's so bad that there's only one solution. It's not legislation and it's not OSHA. It is not the, um, uh, any other branch of government. It is spiritual and it comes from the grace of God. So the ground is cursed. So man has, because of one sinful decision, has devastated the entire physical environment. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now there is conflict. Before Adam could go out and, and he hardly had to do anything and, and he just produced tremendous uh, vegetables in the garden and everything just nature cooperated with man and there was no toil involved. There's no sweat involved. There was no difficulty because everything worked in harmony. But now nothing's in harmony. Everything's a challenge. And we'll all recognize part of that in the next week or two as we have to start raking the, the bushels of leaves that will fall in all of our yards. Now, verse 18 expands this a little bit. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So it's, there's even more disharmony. Now it goes from just the fact that it's cursed to it's going to have thorns and thistles. It's, there's going to always be, it's going to be very difficult. You can imagine all of those early farmers who came here to Connecticut uh, 400 years ago and had to, uh, they're the ones who took all those rocks that are on those multiplicity of rock walls around here. It was, it was them and their wives and their children who took all those rocks out of the ground. That must have been terrible. They were daily reminded of the, this particular passage. This covenant then, the fourth provision, is this covenant then goes on to include physical death. There's been no mention of physical death. In fact, up to this point, they still had access to the fruit of the, tr- fruit, I mean, the, the tree of life. So there's no mention of physical death, and this is not mentioned until verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. Now here's my point. The penalty for sin is spelled out in Genesis 2.17. The penalty is spiritual death. It happened instantly. That's already happened. The curse spells out all of the collateral damage, the unforeseen consequences that go along with spiritual death. That Adam's decision reverberates through every aspect of the creation and every part of the universe. Everything changes. Therefore, it is, I would say, just on the basis of understanding these implications, it's absolutely impossible for modern science to be able to come up with any measuring device that would give them any clue as to what the processes were in nature of any kind of decay rates, uh, C14, potassium, argon, or anything else to determine the age of anything prior to Genesis uh, 3.19. Because once this curse hits, it's going to so reverberate through all of the... This is a worse cataclysm than the Noahic Flood ever... Anybody ever thought about making the Noahic Flood. It changes everything. And so there's no way to get beyond this. Everything before this is just so radically different, uh, we have no clue. So once again, it just shows that, that there's only so much you can do with science, and beyond that, you just have to trust the Word of God. So physical death is now outlined as part of the consequence of spiritual death. And the ground is further cursed, and so everything that is supposed to be a blessing prior to the fall is now a curse. And the sixth point, man remains a vegetarian. This will change with the Noahic covenant, but at this point man is still to remain a vegetarian. But the interesting thing is that in Genesis 1, all the plants of the field, and all of the trees are given for man's uh, benefit for his food and for his nourishment. And I said, when I pointed that out last week, to notice the all, every, 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 every plant of the field, every every tree, everything is given, but now it's only going to be the uh, plants of the field. Verse 18, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So there's restriction now. Only some plants are edible Not all plants are edible. But prior to the fall, everything was edible and good for man's nourishment. Now here's this chart to show how the Adamic curse, which becomes the Adamic covenant, it's really the first modification to the Edenic covenant, relates to the specifications of the Edenic covenant and Edenic responsibility. So we have two columns. The one on the left is Edenic responsibility and the column on the right is the curse. In our responsibility under the Edenic covenant, man was to be fruitful and multiply. That was cursed so that the woman would have pain in childbirth. She would now have pain in childbirth so things aren't what they were originally. Uh, In the Edenic covenant, the woman had the responsibility of helping the man, being his assistant in order to help him fulfill God's plan and purposes for his life, to uh, take care of the garden. She was to help him. She reversed her role and challenged his authority in the temptation, and so for that she is cursed, and we go on and on throughout human history with family feud and the authority struggle. And this goes on because now 
Not only does the woman have a desire for her husband, but he's going to rule over you. And uh, that's a tendency of the male is to dominate the woman. This, he shall rule over you. That's not a positive thing for the guys either. That means he wants to be the totalitarian dictator in the home. And he wants you to jump and ask how, he wants you to ask how high on the way up every time he says jump. But you see, if you look at this, this is, all of this it starts to get reversed only in the church age under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because now, because of the new spiritual life in the church age, husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's just the opposite. Wives are to respect your husbands. You are to obey your husbands. So now, because of the provision of God the Holy Spirit, man can start seeing this, this aspect of the curse rolled back as part of the spiritual life of the church age to demonstrate in marriage a, a, a witness and testimony to counteract the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden. And it can only come about when the Christian husband and Christian wife are both positive to doctrine and advancing. And when that breaks down, then all you're doing is playing into Satan's hand and you're just another witness uh, for Satan in his uh, challenge to God. So the woman was designed to be the helper, but now there's authority struggle. They were to subdue the earth in Genesis 1. But now the earth is cursed and brings forth thorns and is in an antagonistic relationship. There was a harmonious relationship to begin with and now a, an, an antagonistic relationship. Fourth, they were to rule over the animals. This was in harmony, a harmonious environment, but they were the authority and they were to rule over the animals. That's still in effect even though that relationship is cursed. But man is still to rule over the animals and that's not to be done in an irres- irresponsible manner, which we've all know of historical examples, such as the buffalo hunting that took place back in the 1870s when the buffalo hunters would go out and just slaughter enormous mounds and just w- of buffalo and just waste food and all kinds of provisions. There's always examples, but that doesn't negate the rule. Just because man doesn't fulfill the responsibility in an expeditious or judicial manner doesn't mean the, that the uh, mandate is wrong. It just means God, man needs to get in line with the system. Every plant was given for food in Genesis 1, but now it's only the plants of the field for food in Genesis 3. So there is a definite change there. Man was to serve God and to guard Eden in Genesis 2 and in the curse he is expelled. This comes up in verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And that shows you that it, would, it was theoretically possible for man to eat from the tree of life. And therefore, physical death as the penalty for sin, had, I mean, physical death had nothing to do with the penalty for sin. Because if it did, then that would not have been even theoretically possible. So man is expelled from the garden. Verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So the Edenic responsibility was not to eat from the fruit of the tree and of good and evil. And the curse is spiritual death brings physical death and suffering and all that goes with it. And that brings us up to the point where we get to the Noahic Covenant, 
in Genesis chapter 9, and we will come back and begin our study of that in two weeks. Remember, there will not be any Bible class or prayer meeting next Wednesday night. Be sure to let everybody know not to show up because uh, I will be out of town and uh, we will just give everybody a break. Don't forget, be back here, same time, same station, two weeks, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together. Pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned. See how our whole life has been transformed by your grace. And that you've given us a provision to, to reverse all of these devastating consequences of sin. But it only comes as we advance through sanctification, maturity, and the spiritual life. We pray that you would help us to remember these things and reflect on them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.